This is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nest Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering five conversations from Season 3, Episode 48, a review of the recent press releases for Five Drugs in Development, plus, from the vault, a section from our NASHTAG 22 coverage considering different issues surrounding the trial designs and use of drug and diagnostic combinations. This week, our conversation from the vault comes from Season 3, Episode 6, part of our NASHTAG wrap-up looking at issues in combination therapy. It is not a single conversation, but more like an in-depth news feature report, with me sharing comments that other panels made during the various same-day sessions we held during the conference. It winds up addressing three issues related to combination therapies, longitudinal multidrug regimens and strategies, combination use of NITs, and the logical way to design high-value testable combination agents. Reviewing this conversation in the context of what we discussed today reminded me of how far our knowledge of drug development has come in just nine months and how much better reasons we have to anticipate successes in the near future. As we head into AASLD in 2023, it's an exciting prospect. So, sit back. Listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join our dialogue on the LinkedIn discussion group. So the first time this broader issue of combination therapy came up in our podcast last weekend was early Saturday morning as we discussed the first sessions from Friday, where presenters reviewed data from the FXR, FGF-19, and FGF-21 classes. The first instructive conversation involved the proper role for FXRs and the rationale behind it. Speaking of the FXRs, doing a deep dive into where we are with that, this is what started the whole NASH movement, at least really getting it on track as far as developing a drug for NASH starting off with the Flint trial six years ago and then turning that into the Regenerate study. And we all know the issues with that. The, the therapeutic index has kind of been the challenge with the FXR class, looking at efficacy versus adverse event profiles. In total, there have been about eight FXRs that have been studied to date. And I showed a slide speaking on the pleiotrophic mechanism of action of this drug. And there may be differences within the FXR class as far as efficacy relative to liver fat content reduction, ALT reduction, fibrosis improvement, also some differences in the prevalence of pruritus and LDL increase and HDL decrease. Uh, however, as a general rule, I think we can all feel comfortable in saying that pruritus and LDL increase are generally a class effect. Having said that, there are still FXRs in play. There have some that there are some that are no longer being developed. Uh, I mentioned already that intercept beta colic acid is still working to try to get FDA approval and resubmitting their package of data with additional safety data sets as well as efficacy. So it's still pending in that regard. I don't think the overall FXR class is a non-starter anymore. I do think that the pendulum has shifted from the thinking that the FXR class will be the backbone of therapy for NASH. My comments were, if we can reduce the dose of the FXR, maybe mitigate some of the adverse event profile and add it to another agent, we could boost the efficacy of the second agent and synergistically get a little further down the road as far as improving the histopathology of these patients. Rohit was moderating the session and asked several of us what we thought the biggest challenge with the drug was. Myself and Vlad thought pruritus was the bigger issue here. My reason for saying that was mainly my patients are asymptomatic. And when I put them on a drug and two weeks, four weeks later, they're coming to me complaining of itching 
to the point where they're complaining of itching and I'm not asking about, do you itch? At that point, I can almost assure you that most of those people will eventually quit taking the drug or would not take it with any rigor. Now, that was countered by many other people saying they thought the hepatobiliary issues were the biggest concern with this class of drug, gallstone formation, issues with potential dilly. There was a robust discussion, good discussion, I would say, but there was disagreement as to the severity of hepatobiliary impacts on this class. But I would just say that that is one of the challenges that's going to have to be dealt with as we move forward. And quite frankly, that's my whole reasoning for lowering the dose of the FXR and pulling it in in combination with something else. At the end of the day, the ideal therapy, and I showed this slide also, is therapy that has histopathologic benefit across the board, but also there's benefits on many of the extra hepatic complications that our patients suffer from, from liver fat content reduction to lipid lowering to glycemic control and weight loss. So there is an opportunity for FXRs to come in and augment the histopathologic benefits, but just having this hashtag real talk conversation this morning, there's not a lot of benefit on glycemic control, certainly not benefit on lipid lowering or weight loss to any significant degree. So again, I think at the end of the day, they're not dead, but they're best suited for combination therapy in my mind. So Steve, you made a really interesting point about this, which is, you know, this balance between efficacy, safety, and tolerability. And I think we need to keep safety and tolerability as almost two separate headings rather than one. But, but it also strikes me with Oka that this is a, well, not Oka, all FX are like this. This is a, a class where actually we are needing personalized medicine approaches mm -hmm. because what we're currently doing is assuming that you give an FXR agonist, you have the same response in all individuals, and that's clearly not the case. So can I just keep us reminded that the FXRs, I just don't want to, you, you're right, it's good for combo, but I think the field is going to all be combo, like type 2 diabetes. And with a drug like this, apparently, like, if you go higher in the dose, you get side effects, no matter what generation mm -hmm. uh, you're in. Maybe the second generation is better, less Itching, but I think that it's dose related very much, and we talked about this yesterday. We also need to keep in mind the other agents' side effects, like the FGFs, the diarrheas, the injectable drugs. And I think a lot of drugs need to be combined with agent like FXR. So to me, is the FXR, I will still say it's probably a main player, and everything is going to be combined at the end of the day. It's just like, what's the right combo? And I really like Quentin's point about personalized medicine. Maybe we're like, well, genotype people at the end and start therapy based based on that. This is one of the directions as a whole. We all agree that combination therapy is likely to be the direction of travel here. It's also then about personalizing that choice of combination to the individuals. This is something that actually is going to be increasingly important for us to start handling and you know, building into our phase two and phase three studies so that we really understand the cohorts. After a comment from Louise Campbell about the value of starting to assess precision medicine in the context of pool X and then benefit from diet and exercise. Masa Nuruddin went back to Quentin's earlier point. I will go back to the precision medicine that Quentin talked about. We have done that before with other diseases, hepatitis C or genotype one through six. So I won't be surprised one day we'll say PNLP panel is that, TMS6F is, is that, start such a therapy. We need to go there further. 
and start looking at response. I don't recall any more than a study or two that looks at responses with genotype and no one looked at the placebo with genotyping. So I think this is a wide open area that needs to be explored. So you're absolutely right. One of the few studies that springs to mind on it actually was one done with elafibrinol, which was presented at ESOL by ourselves. And actually what you saw there was it was not significant, but it was woefully underpowered, but a trend towards greater efficacy in PMPLA3 carriers, which if you think about it, is entirely consistent with the fact that we know that carriers of PMPLA3 are more likely to have a greater beneficial effect from diet and weight loss, lifestyle change, and so on. So it's this idea that one side carrying the genetic variant makes you at greater risk of the disease, but also you've got more to gain by an intervention. Uh, and maybe like it's not just the PLP3, maybe a genetic okay. risk score needs to be thrown in in this because it was not significant. Maybe the other genes are also playing a role and you need to yeah, you well, need to come out with the beginning of that road, right? I mean yeah, yeah. that is the point. And one of the things that with it. I would say is that sponsors really need to be building this in right from the get-go in the studies. There's often a, a concern that maybe one's going to unearth something that one didn't want to know. And I think that, I think that's a, a unfortunate way of thinking about it. I think it's much better to build this in, have knowledge, except that there will always be tolerability issues, downsides to any compound. So actually look to see how you can stratify and mitigate it. Indeed, you can argue that you can risk stratifying randomization in the future based on those, other than one right now, the type 2 diabetes. I mean, it's an important factor, but in the future, you might have more success if you genotype well and randomize per genotype. So far, the group had only been talking about FXRs as a class and maybe some theoretical issues. But when Stephen shifts the conversation towards FGF19s and later 21s, the entire concept of combination therapy starts to gain substance and multiple dimensions. You know, I think we all agree that this compound has biological activity in the liver. And just following on the tails of, of FXRs, and I thought this was kind of cool that it happened right after the FXR talk, is, you know, FGF19 works through FGF beta clotho 1C and 4C, or 1C and 4. And so there's this idea that FGF19 agonism is, is going to work on peripheral uh, adipose tissue insulin sensitivity and downregulate free fatty acid flux to the liver. And maybe that's the reason why you see rapid liver fat content reduction on PDFF. Then there's the whole other action through FGFR4 and its effects on bile acids. And is that the bigger play here? What's the role of the bile acid inhibition relative to the role of decreasing free fatty acid flux? If we can learn more from that, we can take the lessons learned from the FGF19 class and apply them to either combination therapies that we have in play today or as we begin to design novel therapies in the future to get around some of these issues that we face with LDL increase or whatnot. By the time we shift fully to FGF21s, two entirely different dimensions around combination therapy come into play. Stephen starts by pointing out the incredible range of diversity of agents within the class, highlighting the point that we're just at the beginning of figuring out what we need to learn about FGF21s. Still, he expresses real excitement about their potential and is puzzled why colleagues might not feel that way. I think with the 21s, we are literally at the beginning of understanding this class fully, and it is the wild, wild 
West, Mm -hmm. but I'm super excited about it. I guess I walked away a little bit yesterday feeling that there wasn't that robust excitement with the FGF-21s. And maybe I took away a different feeling than others, but I am excited about the 21s, despite the fact that it's injectable, despite that there, the fact there are some tolerability issues with GI. I think this class has an opportunity when used in the right patient population, the more advanced patient population, as an induction therapy to get these people under rapid control. We are going to see uh, extra hepatic effects that are very, very promising for some of these drugs, whether it's weight loss, lipid reduction, glycemic control. We've seen that with this class. Mm-hmm. So I am I'm high on the 21s coming out of, of NASHTAG 2020. I, I agree. With, I totally agree mm-hmm. with that. I mean, uh, my point was between the FXR and FGFs, I think they're intimately close to each other. I think that access is very important and we'll be talking about it. Then TH beta is, is something different. And you have, for instance, GLP-1s is mm-hmm. daily week injection. It's great. It, uh, you lose weight. But to Stephen's point, the FGFs has direct effect on the liver and that's important and that access is in the pathophysiology of the disease and we need to address that access and that underlying pathophysiology. So I totally agree. One of the things I heard three or four people yesterday, because I just interview people because I don't know enough to be dangerous anyway, but I know enough to ask questions. Three or four people raised the concern that peg and falling apart in 48 weeks scared the stuffing out and out of Panecta. And those were the two things I heard that people took out of yesterday, maybe more than they went into it with. Now, to have the commercial and medical sophistication that you just exhibited to say, it's maybe an induction drug, it may only go six months, right? And then we might run out of room with it. But for a lot of patients, those six months are really going to matter. That, I think, is what everybody needs to start thinking about along with comp. Combination therapy isn't only which drugs are you taking at the same time, but it's if you plot a flight path for a patient, right? As we go from Wright Brothers to fifth generation strike fighters, right. Right? as we plot a flight path, flight path is also temporal. It's got, it's got a time dimension in it. Yeah, so this is where I will get kind of a cross-eyed with some of my colleagues because there's this thought that if, if a drug is not moving fibrosis, it's because we're not treating long enough. And, and that's a comment I hear over and over again. But I really believe that fibrosis is more dynamic than what people give it credit for. And until you become portal hypertensive cirrhotic, we can move the needle on fibrosis quicker with the right drug. Hitting the right, And it may be personalized medicine. It may be it takes the right drug and the right patient to move the amount of fibrosis as quickly as we'd like to move it. But I think the 21 class. Look, we may have issues with ADAs, with anti-drug antibodies. We may have issues with tolerability. But if we dose it in the right patient for the right length of time, I think we could have the effect that we want, not just on the liver, but on the extra hepatic benefits and transition them over to something else for the long haul. So by the time we get to the end of that conversation, you can see two dimensions emerging. Question number one, would we want to give two different drugs at the same time to achieve two different purposes with lower doses? The kind of thing we talked about with FXRs, maybe FGF9. And then number two, would we like to start out with one drug that has tremendous short-term power, but then over time shift to something that might be more sustainable? Now, when the conversation shifts from Stephen's lead, which was about drugs, to Quentin's, not surprisingly, topic shifts to diagnostics. And even within the diagnostic topic, though, one focus becomes the longitudinal use of diagnostic testing to achieve different diagnostic goals efficiently throughout the process. As you listen, hear how standard this thinking is for testing as compared to long-term medication strategies or pathways that rely on, as a single course, doing different things at different times. So for our listeners, from your perspective, looking at these huge data sets, ELF and FIP4, 
are you, I'll just throw an action item out there. Are you thinking today that you would initially screen with FIB4 if you have an indeterminate or positive value to FIB4, that you would chase that with an ELF because you like it more as a second-tier test to stratify the advanced disease as opposed to an initial test where you're really trying to maybe get at excluding patients? Absolutely. So I think this is a, a, a That's really right. important point. FIB4 it's very cheap. It's very easy to apply. It is therefore very good to rule out disease and it allows you to enrich the population that goes forward and improve the performance of a second-line test. Now, that could be ELF. It could be uh, Fibroscan. You can mm-hmm. argue about what you right. use next till the cows come home, but actually right. it's how you gain the situation yeah. to improve the performance of the second-line test. And it's I want not hard. It's not hard anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, so also, as far as have a place in our hearts, <laughs> Also, for, for FIB4, I totally see it this way. And I also want to keep us reminded that correlation with outcomes is very important. And ELF is doing very well with that, VCT and MRE. I want to remind people People of the excellent JHEP paper that uh, came exactly. Yeah. So the outcomes with FIB4, almost half of the patients that were in the lower indeterminate zone had events, if I remember correctly. I think the thing we've got to take away is that any biomarker that accurately stages fibrosis will have prognostic value mm-hmm. because the presence of fibrosis has prognostic value. So you know, it, it's true of FIB4, it's true of natural fibrosis score, it's true of ELF, it's true of Fibroscan. It will probably be true of any other good fibrosis biomarker that comes along. So that pretty much wraps up our conversation about combination therapies and longitudinal use of drugs and diagnostics from Episode 2. In Episode 4, our wrap-up with Amy Articolo, Aaron Quirk, Ian Rowe, and Rachel Zayas, the same point comes up again. First from Ian, in terms of multiple goals during therapy with antifibrosis drugs or fibrotically balanced therapy. And then from Amy, in terms of, from a corporate perspective, how do you think about combination therapy as a way to solve problems? Have a listen. The point that he made about unmet needs in, in fibrosis was when we think about antifibrotics, we're thinking about drugs that are going to block the progression of disease. And what he was really talking about was trying to understand resolution of fibrosis more clearly so that you could target the other side of the balance so that once you've switched off injury or maybe even without switching off injury, then you can promote the resolution of the scar, allow the fibrosis to regress and for the patient to have a better outcome. I guess putting those two things together, the team in Edinburgh are are running studies looking at macrophage-based cell therapies to try and promote scar resolution really is proof of concept that that can be done. There's lots to be seen through the approaches complementarily looking at both progression and regression. Ian, I think that your point is incredibly well taken. In our drug development strategies, we have tended to say we'll knock out the upstream drivers of stellate cell activation and vicariously we'll wait for the liver to begin to heal rather than targeting therapies that could actually promote wound healing in addition. And to that end, I'd love to add, I really appreciate those talks because I'm a big fan of let's get to the core of the problem, right? right you know, what are we really looking to, to drive and really solve for? And so that for me, it was, I felt like it was the aha moment of the talk that Michael Charlton gave regarding combination trials and his hearts along, you know, what he would like to see because it resonated quite a bit with me, not only in as an individual, but also, uh, you know, from a company that's striving to look at combinations 
emotions, but also to hear um, Scott talk about that and the upstream effect. And so it makes you pause and go, okay, so what are we really trying to do? You know, what is the greatest impact for the greatest good in a very patient-centric approach, thinking what is the patient going to be willing to take to improve how they function, how they feel, and what can we as collectively do to really get us from point A to point B so that we're able to put that therapeutic and that potential combination therapeutic in the patient's hands. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content in this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week to discuss the recent NICE meeting evaluating use of VCTE in community settings in the UK. In the meantime, stay safe, surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. <laughs>